So I've been a pastor in some capacity for a number of years now. There are brothers and sisters who are coming with Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll be happy to pass one along to you. Right behind you there, Christella, this brother. Thank you. Excellent. So Bible's coming around. Raise your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want this to be a gift to you. Please accept this. Take this home. Treasure it, we hope, the way we treasure it, uh, because in it you will find the message and the truth about who God is in Jesus Christ, his son. All right? So we're in Colossians chapter 1. If you're sitting next to someone new to the Bible, help them find Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter 1, I mean the big number on the page. And when I say verse 1, uh, I mean the small number on the page. And then you'll be able to follow along in a sermon if you follow along with me in the Bible. What we're going to try to do is explain what God's Word says and what it means and apply it to our lives. So as I was saying, I've been a pastor now in some capacity or another for, uh, I don't know, 12, 14 years, something like that. And, and there are a number of things that you encounter as a pastor, things that just sort of come up over and over again. Uh, I know that sometimes when we struggle, we have questions about various things, it can feel pretty unique to us, and, and there's a sense in which we should feel that, right? It's our one life, and it comes to us, and, and we have to work those things out. But in the broad scope of things, there's some things that just keep recurring. One of those is you, you will constantly run into or regularly run into people who've experienced some kind of church hurt who have, as a consequence of some experience, had their affections for the church damaged or weakened, who have lost some confidence in Christians and the, and the organized church. And this could be from any number of things. This could be from seeing scandals that are quite high profile on the television news. Or this could be suffering some injustice inside the church that doesn't make the news headlines but isn't any less important to you or less painful to you. This could be the failing of a pastor. Uh, some of us have come out of churches that um, taught false things, and that false teaching has harmed our lives in various ways. And here's the thing. Sometimes when you lose confidence in the church, you attempt to lose confidence in God. Sometimes the imperfections and the unfaithfulness of a church will tempt you to think that God himself is imperfect and unfaithful. It's a staggering thing, really. God has chosen to have limited, fallen creatures represent him, the unlimited, perfect one. It's remarkable. And he's done that in such a way as to not just leave the creatures alone to represent them in all of their fallenness and all of their brokenness, but even in the fallenness and the imperfection and the brokenness, God is with his people, strengthening his people, showing through his people what he's like. And that's something we have to hold on to. But to hold on to that, we've got to learn to see what God is doing. In his people. That's how we treasure the church, as we learn to trace God's hand in the midst of the mess in his people. So Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, and he opens this letter as he customarily does with thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God for the Colossians. And in this text, I want to suggest to us that one of the treasures that we have in Christ, and that's the, that's the sort of series title, Our Treasures in Christ, one of the treasures that we have in Christ is the local church, is a faithful local church. And in this letter to the Colossians, I want to show us four things then to give God thanks for when we find ourselves in a faithful church. Four things to give God thanks for when we find ourselves in a faithful local church. Number one, give God thanks for faithful brothers and sisters, for faithful brothers and sisters. Number two, give God thanks for converted brothers and sisters, for genuinely converted brothers and sisters. Number three, give God thanks for a spreading gospel, for a spreading gospel. And number four, give God thanks for faithful ministers, for faithful ministers of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Follow along as I read, please. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul begins here, verses 1 and 2, with a pretty typical greeting. Verse 1 gives us the authors, Paul and Timothy. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Many of you will know that an apostle is just another word for a messenger or a sent one. It can be used of sort of ordinary messengers like our mailmen. But in this case, it's used in a special sense of uh, those messengers of Jesus Christ, those uh, messengers that Christ himself has commissioned and sent out into the world to preach the gospel, to teach the word of God, to establish and plant churches, and to lead those churches. And so Paul here introduces himself with his apostolic greeting card, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now notice it is by the will of God that Paul is an apostle. In other words, Paul didn't wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to be an apostle. You know, he didn't, he didn't go somewhere and take one of those career inventories and it come back and says, you know, you, you look especially equipped to be an apostle. It's not, that's not how it happened. He didn't thrust himself in this, right? You remember Paul was on his way to Damascus when he was called Saul, when he was a, a Pharisee, a, a, a sort of sect of, of Judaism, a strict and religious sect, uh, and he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, to arrest Christians, to put them in jail, to beat them and mistreat them. When Jesus intercepted him on that road and he had this vision that left him blind for a time in which the Lord spoke to him and he recognized that it was the Lord. And it was from that point that the Lord began to sort of thrust Paul, as it were, into this ministry. And so there's a sense in which I think Paul is saying, listen, I am an apostle not by my choosing, but by God's gracious, loving coercion, by his calling, by his working in my life. This is why he says in, in other parts of the New Testament, he says, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. There's this compelling, there's this driving into this ministry that the apostle feels. And here's the remarkable thing. He obeys Jesus. He doesn't say, no, Lord. He doesn't say, yeah, I hear your call, but I got some other things I need to do right now. He doesn't sort of put off the, the work of the ministry and, and turning his whole life around in obedience to Christ. He, no, he submits to the will of God. And he serves the Lord, even at the expense of his health, eventually his life, and his freedom. Paul the faithful apostle. I notice who's traveling with him, this young man named Timothy. He calls Timothy here our brother. Now, even though Timothy and Paul have never been to Colossae, as chapter 2, verse 1 says, they're still family with the Colossian Christians. He uses that family language. In fact, that's what a church is, a, a family. It's God's household, God's family. And Timothy has been a faithful part of God's family and a faithful part of the apostolic ministry uh, for as long as he's known Paul, really. So Paul describes him in Romans 16, 21 as my fellow worker. He calls Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. He describes Timothy as, notice this, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. Timothy is faithful. And verse 2 gives us the recipients of the letter. Paul writes there, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. By brothers, Paul means their brethren, as my sister read in the King James. He means both men and women here uh, in the church at Colossae. He calls them saints. Now, when the Bible uses the term saints, it's not using the way we often use it in the culture. When we say someone is a saint, what do, we, what do we oftentimes mean by that? They're really nice, right? They're really generous. They do some great things doesn't mean what the Roman Catholic Church means when it says saint, when it is sort of canonized through special ceremonies, certain persons that it deems to have reached sainthood. No, no, no. When the Bible uses the term saint, it refers to all Christians. 
all those who trust in Christ, by virtue of that trust in Christ, have become saints of God, holy ones of God, God's holy people. A saint essentially is someone who has been set aside by God as belonging to God. And that's what happened to the Colossians when they became Christians. That's what happened to you, beloved, when you became a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, God chose you. And unlike all the other common people, of which we all are common people, he set us aside as special to him. Paul writes to these Colossians and he describes them as saints, but also notice they're faithful brothers in Christ. These saints were faithful. Faithfulness follows holiness. You see the order there. They are saints and they are faithful. Now, a person can be a saint sometimes and fail at holiness, amen? Right? But a person can never be faithful and not a saint. Not, not faithful to God. In order to be faithful to God, you must first begin with God. You must first be related to God. You must first be trusting Christ and serving him. And out of that genuine trust and service comes, by degree, by measure, increasingly by God's grace, this faithfulness. Oh, wait, my brother Tony Carter defines faithfulness. He says to be faithful is to do what you're supposed to be doing, when you're supposed to be doing it, the way you're supposed to be doing it, where you're supposed to be doing it, right? Now, that kind of definition just comes up out of black parenting. (laughs) Your mama say, didn't I tell you to be over here doing this when I told you to do it and and how I told you to do it, right? And that's that's what faithfulness is. And, And here's the thing about that. That kind of understanding of faithfulness won't just happen. We don't drift into faithfulness over a lifetime. We need teaching and a plan and an execution of that teaching and plan. And those who will prove who will be faithful, who prove themselves faithful, the Bible says, will also be rewarded. You know these words from Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Well done, good and what? Faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, faithfulness is the path to joy. Faithfulness is the path to our master's joy, our God's joy. And so faithfulness is far from just drudgery and routine and, and, and just dry effort. No, this is, this is the path that leads to life. This is the path that leads to joy. This is the path that leads to our great reward in Christ with God in heaven. And here's the thing, beloved, a church full of saints who are faithful is a tremendous treasure. It is a great blessing. It's reason to give God thanks. (laughs) The world, the sin nature, the devil, all of those will make it difficult to remain faithful to God, won't they? I mean, so many snares and temptations surround us on every side when we're looking to be faithful, beloved. On the inside as well as the outside. Think of these Colossians. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see that there, there are people who've come into Colossae with some other teaching, trying to add some things to Christ. That's, that's, a, that's a temptation to unfaithfulness from outside, from unfaithful teachers. And you'll see that Paul has to say to them in verse 8 of chapter 2, see that no one takes you captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit. In other words, don't, don't even on the inside give yourself over to these things that are, that are unfaithful and lead to unfaithfulness. There are temptation outside and temptation within. So the path of faithfulness is a path of warfare and struggle. And so we ought to rejoice when God gives us grace to remain true to him. And I I believe if the Lord were writing a letter to ARC this morning, I think he would cause his apostles to address this church as holy and faithful family of God. And beloved, if we look, we can see evidence of it on every hand. Think of our young people living faithfully for Jesus in a, in a, a high-pressure peer culture. There are young people who say, for example, no to dating and worldly dating, knowing that they're not ready for that emotionally and socially and all other kinds of ways, who abstain from intimacy that is beyond their maturity and their commitment uh, in marriage. Praise God. And our singles 
living faithfully for Jesus, maintaining control of their desires and of their bodies as God wants them to, and not only that, but serving others fully in their gifts and, and expressing that, that, that service and that faithfulness to others in, in a, a myriad of ways. Or married couples working through their problems. You realize that it's the occasion of problems that allows us to prove faithfulness. It's easy to be faithful when everything is going well. It's when things get hard and you do the hard thing that you prove that you are faithful. Couples here who are working through misunderstandings and squabbles and, and even deep hurts and betrayals. That's faithfulness. Or consider the mothers caring for children. Some who work outside the home, some who work inside the home who are nevertheless working and endeavoring to give themselves to their children, to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's faithfulness. And fathers caring for their children, not provoking their children to wrath, being both strength and gentleness, teaching the word of God, leading the family, working every day, providing. But faithfulness is so daily, beloved, that it's easy to miss it. I think this letter beckons us to sort of pay particular attention to observe among ourselves evidences of God's grace expressed in the faithfulness of the saints and to give God thanks for that. I could go on, but let's just do that. Let's train our eyes to see faithfulness, to applaud it, to encourage it, to remark out loud on it, and to give God thanks for it. A faithful church is a great treasure. But no, secondly, there's a, another treasure in a faithful church, and that is genuinely converted brothers and sisters. So Paul comes down to verse 3, and he writes these words. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When Paul describes Jesus with the title Christ, he does something very Jewish. Christ means anointed one or chosen one. It comes from the Old Testament. It translates the, the Old Testament idea of Messiah. And so when he refers to Jesus by that title, he is now connecting the Christian faith with his Jewish roots. He's connecting the Christian faith with the Old Testament promises that God had made to Israel centuries before. He's saying this Jesus is that Christ. But when he says, describes God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he does something distinctively Christian, something that no Jewish person on average would have done in Paul's day. He's teaching something that's now been revealed in the New Testament more fully, that this God who exists and made all the world, he exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God reveals himself to us through Christ as the Father. And Christ reveals to us through his own witness to God and through his own sacrifice and, and in the gospel that this God who is Christ's father is also the father of all who believe in Christ. So he's saying this is the one to whom we come to and to whom we give thanks. And why give thanks to God when he's thinking about the Colossians? Well, it's because salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's God who saves and here he gives us in these three verses three proofs of the Colossians' genuine conversion, of their genuine faith in Christ. Notice there, he refers in verses 4 and 5 to their faith, to their love, and to their hope. Some of those things Aaron's small group is studying in 1 Corinthians 13, you will, you will recognize this as the, the three great virtues in the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. These three abide, and the greatest of these is love. So when Paul is referring to them in these ways, he's not just sort of plucking random words out of the air. He is in, in effect saying, no, I see these evidences of your genuine faith in Christ, of your genuine conversion to Christ, and he's giving God thanks for this fruit in their lives. So he remarks on their faith. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is to to believe in something. But in the, in the Bible, in Christian terms, it is to believe in something in such a way as to trust it, to rely upon it, to depend upon it. All of you right now are exercising faith sitting in these old high school chairs. You are depending upon these auditorium chairs to hold up your weight. 
to, to carry you, to keep you, to not let you fall. And notice here, Paul says that their faith is not in themselves, but their faith is in Christ Jesus, is in Jesus Christ. He's the object of their faith. He's the one who's holding them up. He's the one who has saved them. So they have turned to Jesus in reliance and dependence and trust to trust him as Lord, as Savior, to do what he said he would do, save them from the coming judgment of God and make them the very children of God. Paul says that's something to give God thanks for. But not only that, their love too. Notice how he puts it there? He's heard of their love, the love that they have for all the saints. We are saved, beloved, by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Genuine faith in Christ produces this fruit, produces these virtues. How does the Lord Jesus put it in John 13? Another small group studying John. John chapter 13, he says, by this men will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. In those words, the Lord Jesus elevates love to the, the very sign, the badge of true Christian discipleship. First uh, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, you can look at these later. The apostle John, who learned from Jesus, agrees, and he puts it this way. We know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, John says, here's the proof that you've been resurrected from your death in sins and given life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we have um, passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's making it really clear. You take someone who professes to be a Christian, but does not love other Christians. And that lack of love, well, it makes their profession empty. Well, you want to see what someone looks like when they've been raised from death in sin spiritually to life in Christ spiritually? It looks like love. This is how you know. You love the brothers. And so Paul could write in Galatians chapter 5 around verse 6 that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. That true, genuine, biblical faith expresses itself in love. And notice the object, not only for Christ, but for all Christ's people. Right? And then he moves to hope. He says here that the Colossians have a hope that has been laid up for them in heaven. It's a striking way of putting it, isn't it? It's not that they have hope that has earned heaven for them. Not saying you, you're going to heaven because you have hope. He says, no, there's a hope outside of them that itself has been laid up for them in heaven. And here Paul is referring really to the, as one commentator puts it, the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. In other words, heaven is our hope. Christ who is in heaven is our hope. All the riches and the treasures and the pleasures and the glories that have been promised to us in Christ and purchased for us in the cross, that's our hope. That's, that's where our treasure is. That's, that's where our heart lies, right? And so we, we are not fundamentally hoping in ourselves and our own efforts. We're not fundamentally hoping in government or hoping in family or hoping in any other thing. Those are not our sources of the greatest hope. However much they encourage us and however much they help us. No, our true hope, which is our true treasure, notice, is laid up for us. Someone else placed it there for us. And it's kept there by the power of God, as Peter says, incorruptible, unspoiled, unfading. It's kept there and placed there by God in Christ for us. And Peter says, your hope is in heaven, not this world. And that's the mark that you're a genuine Christian, that you have been converted. Because before Christ, your hope was everywhere else but heaven. So he says, faith, hope, and love. I see it in you. And did you notice what, what comes along with that faith, hope, and love? Where their faith is in Christ, so Christ is the gift. Their, their hope is in heaven, so heaven is the gift. And their love, well, their love brings them the gift of the church. 
You know, all that God has redeemed and all that God has prepared for us is, is given to us in these virtues which he produces by his spirit in Christ. And so this teaches us, doesn't it, to rejoice at the faith we see in each other, at the trust in Christ that we observe in each other. And it teaches us to, to love, doesn't it? And to be suspicious of lovelessness. You've heard the cliche, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, lovelessness is next to godlessness. Now, God is love, and love comes from God. And those who are God's love with the love that he loves in and through us. And it teaches us to root our hope beyond the reach of our enemies, doesn't it? It's stored for us in heaven, kept there by the power of God, unshakable by the earthquakes of this life, untakeable by any hand in this planet, seen or unseen. Our hope is in heaven where Christ is seated and all the promises and pleasures of God are given. So, beloved, like Paul, let us, let us be a church that marks these things, that notes these things, and rejoices in these things. Let us, with each other, point out evidences of faith, hope, and love as a way of assuring one another of God's work in our lives. It's striking. Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never met these Christians. He knows this, as he tells us in verse 7, uh, because Epaphras has made this known to him. You don't even have to know the intimate details of another person's life. You, you can hear of their faith, hope, and love secondhand and that still be ground enough to give God praise for his work in their lives. And so let us be the, the kind of church family where this, this recognition of God's work by his spirit in our lives is, is constantly noticed and, and given and, and spoken of that we might gain the full assurance of faith by pointing these things out. So, here's an application. Choose someone, anyone, several someones, and thank them and thank God for his work in their lives. And whatever measure you see these qualities, praise God for it and encourage them about it. It could be a letter like Paul has written this letter to Colossae. It could be with words, face to face. In this day and age, there are all kinds of media in which you could do this. Choose someone. Give God thanks for them. And tell them of the grace you see in their lives. Which brings us to a third thing. A, a church, a faithful church, is a great treasure, number thir three, because in it we will see a spreading gospel. A spreading gospel. That's what we see in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, there, there of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. These couple of lines really are the heart of the Thanksgiving section of this letter. Paul looks at the Colossian church and he can't help but conclude one thing. The gospel is growing. And that's something to treasure, beloved. That's something to rejoice. Notice it is reach Colossae. He says the word of the truth, the gospel. That's a difficult phrase. You could take those three nouns apart, word, truth, gospel, or you can translate it the, the word, the true gospel. And so Paul is saying, listen, the true message of Jesus Christ has made its way to Colossae. It has reached you. It has come to you. And you have learned this from Epaphras. You don't need to add anything to what Epaphras has taught you. He has taught you the message of Christ, and that message has reached you. But not only has it reached Colossae, but notice Paul says it's reached the whole world. He says that indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Some great preachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones takes Paul literally here. He, he argues that the gospel has already reached the entire world. I love Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I don't think he gets that right. Most others take this a little bit more hyperbolically, a little bit more figuratively. But in either case, what Paul can see, even from a prison cell in Rome, is that the good news of Jesus Christ was blowing wind everywhere in his day. The gospel had feet 
He was marching from town to town. He was reaching people where they were. And it's gone to Colossae, this Gentile area. So the gospel is no sort of message limited to Jewish areas. The, the gospel is cosmopolitan. It, it reaches all places in the world because God is the God of the whole world. It's not like God is only God in Jerusalem. God is God everywhere. And he has sent his gospel forward to people everywhere. Notice that interesting phrase, bearing fruit and increasing. Well, why is that interesting? Well, one reason it might be interesting is it resembles a lot the language of Genesis and the creation count, doesn't it? Where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. And we find that phrase again a little bit later, right after the flood narrative, where God now says to Noah and his sons the same thing, to, to go into the world and to be fruitful and to increase in number. It's that same language that gets picked up with Abraham and the, and the patriarchs. He tells them that they would, he would increase their number uh, and multiply their seed in Genesis 17 and other places. And it's the same thing that happened to Israel in Egypt in their sojourn and their slavery and coming out of that. God had multiplied them. And in Genesis chapter 48, when they are about to leave Egypt and slavery there, he, he says these very things. And he's going to bless them to multiply. It's what he says to them after they go into exile in, in Jeremiah chapter 3 and, and chapter 23, that they will increase in number and bear fruit. And so Paul may be echoing this, this biblical theme running through the scripture and telling us that those promises to Israel find their fulfillment in the gospel and the way the gospel increases and bears fruit among all nations, not just Israel. And so God is at work by this message to change people, to touch people, to bring people into his family. Now, I realize I'm using ordinary words, but this, beloved, is no ordinary thing. This is miraculous. It is a great act of kindness if you live in a place and a time where the gospel comes to you. And notice, we didn't go to the gospel. The gospel came to us. God sent it into the world first by his son, then by his apostles, and then by those who preach it. And it's not only miraculous that the gospel came to us, beloved. <laughs> you know how miraculous it is that we believed it? I mean, put yourself in Colossae, this crossroads city. A trading town. All kinds of people come through Colossae with all kinds of cultural and religious backgrounds, teaching all kinds of things. And, and along comes Epaphras one day, who is, later the letter tells us, from Colossae. And you remember what Jesus says, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, right? But Epaphras comes home one day, and he starts talking about this man named Jesus. And he tells the Colossians, his neighbors and friends there, that, that Jesus was born in a little bit of a place called Bethlehem and, and that his birth fulfilled the, the prophecies of a, a Jewish book, a religious book, which most of them knew nothing about. And he says this man, Jesus, not only was born in Bethlehem, but, but he was the one that God promised to Israel who would be a savior of the world. He would deliver them. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the Christ. And not only that, was he born in Bethlehem and was he the Christ, but this same Jesus is God. It's God's one and only son, his unique son. And he lived in and around Jerusalem and, 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 and throughout the towns of Israel, and he preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and he was the king of that kingdom. And he was crucified, though he had done nothing wrong. He had committed no sins. He'd broken no laws. He was perfectly righteous in obedience to God. And they killed him for it. And three days later, amazingly enough, God raised this Jesus from the dead. And the people listened. And then he goes on to explain what these things mean. That because Jesus is God, the Son, who has come into the world in our flesh, he's taken our place in front of God. He's taking our place in front of God in two ways. Number one, he obeys God's rules, God's laws, where we could not. All of them, to the T. And number two, he suffers God's judgment that was really meant for us. 
We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who broke God's law. We were the ones who should have suffered God's wrath. We were the ones who should have gone to hell. But the Son of God stood in our place. And he took from God the judgment that we deserve. That's what's happening on the cross. And three days later, when God raises him from the dead, he does it for our justification, for our right standing with God. And God is proving that he accepted that sacrifice in our place. And then Epaphras at some point turns to his Colossian neighbors and he says this, and God requires all men everywhere to repent of their sin, confessing them to God, and to trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the true God who took away our sins in his sacrifice and brought us righteousness in his resurrection. And he tells them what the promise is. That all those who trust this Christ are forgiven of their sins, are declared righteous with God, are adopted into God's family, will live forever in God's kingdom, and will share with God God's own glory. And they believed. God did a miracle through that message. The Spirit of God took men and women who were dead in their sins, and the Spirit of God made them alive again. And in making them alive again, he gave them the gifts of repentance from sin and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says made them new creations. The old had passed away and the new had come. And these Colossians were no longer fundamentally Colossians. They were now fundamentally Christians. They were now fundamentally saints and holy people of God set apart as special to God by God's grace. And that's the wonderful thing. Notice the text says there, they heard it and they understood the grace of God in truth. They understood that this was not something they did. It was not something they deserved, but God was being kind to them in sacrificing his son and saving them through faith in his son. That this was not something they earned, but God gave it freely as they heard and believed the message. That gospel which traveled the road to Colossae Travel the road to you and to me. And if you believe, beloved, as I have believed, that is no less a miracle of God waking us from the sleep of death in sin and giving us life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you hear this morning, it's not as if that miracle has passed you by. God is still saving sinners. Even today, today is the day of salvation. You're hearing the same message that Epaphras taught to the Colossians. You're hearing the same message that Jesus and all the apostles taught throughout the Bible in their day. That message has reached you. And the important thing is not the messenger, Epaphras or Thabiti or anybody else. The important thing is the message and if you would receive this message and believe in this Christ, trust yourself wholly to him the way you trust your weight on this chair. Depend upon him to save you from God's judgment, which is coming on the world. And depend upon him to make you righteous, to make you holy, to make you God's own child. He will do it if you trust him. If you believe upon him and rest your hopes upon him. And all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does will be yours if you come to him. Forget the world, forget your fear, forget your sin, turn away from it and come to this Jesus who proves his love for you and die on the cross. He will not turn you away. He will receive you into his love. And ARC, I just want to encourage us. We are sitting next to people who are miracles who have been touched by the power of God and raised to newness of life. So I, can I encourage you, when you think about the spread of the gospel, and you pray about the spread of the gospel, put a face on it. Put the faces of all those people in the membership directory on the spread of the gospel. For that's what's happened in their lives. God has included them in his reach and brought them home to himself. 
When we think about who it is we are as, as, a, as a church, let us think first about this great miracle which has invaded our souls and, and made us new. Let us think first about the fact as he's singing that old hymn. I'm starting to feel like I'm at a Billy Graham rally. You know. <laughs> he touched me. Y'all know that? Oh, he touched me. That's right. You want to grab the mic? <laughs> oh, the joy. Fills my soul. He touched me. You're sitting next to people touched by God. Put a face on it. And, and let us not only encourage one another and as we remember this and give God thanks for what he's done for us, but let us also put a face on the gospel by thinking of other gospel churches. This is why we pray, as Jeremy did this morning, for, for other churches in our city, here, and far abroad. And so remember the saints in Dubai. Remember the saints in South Africa. Uh, remember the saints in New Zealand or the, the saints in PG County or the, the saints in uh, Simple City. Remember, God has a people everywhere. And his plan is to establish a people among every people, every tribe, language, and nation. Put a face on it. This is why we put that little section in the bulletin about pray for the nations. And you see people, particular people groups named there and some, some data about those groups. Now, these are people for whom there are almost no Christians in their culture, for whom missionaries need to be sent. Pray for them. Picture them. Ask the Lord that the gospel might spread to those people as well. Think of them. Pray for them. And let us earnestly pray and work for the spread of this gospel here in our neighborhood. This is why we're here. We, 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 let's be reminded, we're, we're not here to be a holy huddle, right? We're not here to sort of gather and rent a nice auditorium and otherwise be unconcerned and unconnected with our neighbors. If we do that, beloved, we're failing. We're failing to love. We're failing to express hope. Uh, we're failing at our mission. We are here, however fumbling, however gradually, however imperfectly, we are here as God's saints, as God's uh, chosen ones to, to make known this gospel and to see it spread house to house, home to home, family to family, where God has placed us. So let us pray for that. Let us seek that. Let us invite neighbors to church. Let us knock on doors and borrow sugar. Not too much because you get a reputation for that. Sometimes lend the sugar too. All right. Let us, let us knock on doors. Let us, let us seek our neighbors and prove ourselves to be God's holy people full of faith, hope, and love and hold out the hope we have to those next door. Give thanks for the spread of the gospel and put a face on it, which brings us to our final point. A fourth treasure you'll find in a faithful church, faithful ministers, faithful ministers. That's what we see in verse 7, in Paul's description of Epaphras. He calls him our beloved fellow servant. The word servant there can literally translate it slave. It's the word doulos. Epaphras is a much-loved slave of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 7, Paul writes, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. A little phrase there, on your behalf, could be translated as it is in the ESV, or it could be on our behalf. It may be that Paul is saying that Epaphras is serving you or that he's serving with us, the apostolic team, in the gospel. It doesn't make a great deal of difference. He is there with Paul's commendation, and he is certainly serving the Colossian church in his prayers and in his preaching. Epaphras did gospel work for the benefit of these people. They learn the truth from this man. Beloved, any person who teaches a false gospel is a judgment on the church. But any man who tells you the true gospel of Jesus Christ is a blessing in your life. In fact, every man who tells you the gospel is a blessing in your life. We live in a city and a country where you can find churches of all types on nearly every block you pass. But we do not live in a country and a city where you can find the gospel plainly and regularly taught on every block. That is a tragedy. So these Colossians, Paul wanted them to recognize what a blessing from God Epaphras was. Which leads us to two applications. First, give God thanks and praise for the Christian, whether a 
professional minister or a layperson who first taught you the gospel and led you to faith in Christ. Never stop to praise God for sending that messenger to you. For some of you, that was someone through a, a Sunday school teacher many years ago. She or he faithfully served her, her classroom for decades, teaching children the gospel, just as is happening right now just across the hallway here. And that's where the miracle happened for you. That's where the message reached you. And, and praise God, that's where you believe. Give God thanks for Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so who volunteered and served and taught your little hard head behind the gospel. Well, some of you came to faith by the faithful teaching of a mother or a father. It was mom or dad who led you to the Lord, whom you went to with a question, or who corrected you in your disobedience, and who had, by God's grace, wisdom to apply this message of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful blessing it is. I hope we don't take it for granted. If we were born in Christian families, if God gave us to parents who knew the gospel and were faithful with it, that's no less a miracle than God finding someone on a street corner dazed in drugs and bringing them to himself from that obvious kind of wretchedness. No, God was being kind and, and God was organizing things in such a way as to bring you to the gospel through your parents. Never cease to give God praise for faithful parents and never cease to give God praise for your parents if they led you to the Lord. And for some of us, it was through the ministry of a street preacher. You're minding your business, walking down some street or across some campus when you heard the foolishness of preaching. And for some reason, you stopped. You don't really know. You scoffed at first. And maybe like me, you mocked. And maybe like me, you missed a whole, days of a whole day of classes arguing with the street preacher. I did, often. <laughs> and before long, you noticed that you were no longer mocking. But you were listening differently. And a little while after that, you noticed that not only were you no longer mocking and listening differently, you were listening not from outside the faith, but inside the faith. Assuming these things to be true and accepting them as your own. Praise God for that street preacher. Wild-eyed and wild-haired, loud and obnoxious, interrupting everybody's day. message of God was coming to you through him. And God touched you. And some of you were converted in a church service just like this. Some preacher, you may not even remember their name, faithfully preached the truth of Jesus Christ that Sunday morning. And you don't know why, but you believed. Things clicked, fell into place. The world was new. You saw differently. You saw yourself differently. You saw Jesus differently. You confessed your sin which were obvious to you at first, but you had no idea that you owed a judgment for it. And you praised Christ, who you had maybe heard about before, but you never considered, had died for you personally. And the preacher told you that, and you heard that, and you believed that, and, and your life was changed. And Christ moved in, and you began to live for Christ as your Lord and your Savior. He became your delight and your treasure. Praise God. That came through the broken vessel of a preacher. God's word, which is full of power, changed your life. And you were saved from the wrath of God to come. Give God thanks for those vessels. And ARC, let us give God thanks, particularly for the pastors, the shepherds that teach us week to week here. The Lord has been pleased to bless this little church with a number of capable preachers, some of whom you haven't even heard from yet. The Lord has been pleased to make five of us pastors and ministers on your behalf. And we believe there are more to come if God is gracious to us. Thank God for those who teach you, from whom you, like the Colossians, learned Christ and the treasures of Christ. Pray for those the Lord may be pleased to raise up. And when he raises them up, receive them as a blessing from the Father. Here's the thing, beloved. Extraordinary things from God are hidden in plain sight. The miracle of God saving people. The miracle of God's message coming to us. The miracle of our lives being changed by that message. These things appear ordinary, but heaven is invading the world 
Christ is coming into lives. The divine is taking the dead and making it alive. Tragic, isn't this? Refuse to be blinded by the ordinary and see what the eyes of faith see. And you will behold your God in your midst, in your imperfect church. And you will see the miracle of your neighbor. God has given us faithful brethren, converted members, a spreading gospel, and faithful ministers. So let us give God thanks. Let's pray together. Oh God, make us sensitive to your dealings with us, to your presence with us. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for taking for granted the extraordinary measures through which you worked to reach us. You sent your Son into the world to die for us. We did not deserve that. He trained apostles and sent them into the world to die for him and for the church. And they willingly obeyed. You sent your spirit through these men to inspire the writing of your scripture. And you have protected your word and made sure that it was copied and disseminated and spread. And, and you've sent preachers into the world. And they have come preaching the good news. And it reached us. And it changed us. You gave us faith and repentance. And you made us your own. And then you set us down in your family and, and called us a church. Week after week, day after day, we open your word, we study it, and, and we hear it preached, and, and you just keep coming to us by your word. Lord, forgive us for thinking that this is ordinary, for thinking this is small, for thinking it is regular. Grant that we would treasure it deeply in our hearts and treasure each other deeply in our hearts, and grant that we would see your divine hand at work in our midst. And let it be to our souls joy, inexpressible, and full of glory. Do this for the praise of your name and for the happiness of your people. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.